Welcome to Cosmic as Fuck. I'm Michael Bryden and I'm here with Dr. Jeffrey Barnes, who is the Director of Criminology from Western Australia Police. Welcome, Jeff. How Thank are you, you doing? I am doing quite well. Good. So we just, I came into your office and we're here in the Cambridge Institute of Criminology and you mentioned some funny ads from Australia, uh, from Kmart, actually. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Talk about that briefly. Well, well, that was actually an American ad. Okay. Um, just a, uh, just a play on, play on words where they're talking about shipping things. And it begins with a man being told that he can ship pants from a Kmart store to his home. And he says, you want me to ship my pants? Ship my pants right here? Yeah. We'll, we'll have a link in the des- description to this uh, ad. It's quite, it's quite funny. So, Jeff, um, you have a PhD in criminology from the University of Maryland in the States. How did you end up in Cambridge and then in Australia? So, I, uh, I was doing my undergraduate, um, so this would be going into the end of the 1980s. <laughs> um, I was a naval midshipman, which meant that I was, the U.S. Navy was paying for my undergraduate, and... Because of that, I owed them four years after graduation of service at sea as an officer. So at the end of my, when I finished my degree, I would be commissioned as an ensign in the U.S. Navy and sent off to sea. Um, But I was also in an honors program at the University of Maryland, which required me to take one graduate level course. Oh, really? Yeah. So uh, I picked the one as undergraduate student that was best for my schedule. Um, didn't it interfere with the soap opera that I and all my friends were watching? <laughs> Which was what? Uh, General Hospital okay. at the time um, with all kinds of characters. Probably the plot has only advanced like three weeks since <laughs> since I finished undergraduate in 1989. Uh, but I, I picked this course because it was it began at some something like ridiculous, like uh, five o'clock at night and then would do all three hours for that week and through eight o'clock at night. And I didn't know, I just picked it off the calendar and didn't under, didn't know who this Sherman guy was <laughs> um, who was teaching it. And I get into the class. The class was exclusively graduate students, um, mostly masters. The University of Maryland sits directly within the Washington, D.C. beltway. So effectively, it's part of the D.C. metropolitan area. Not surprisingly, you end up with a large number of government employees who are attending, uh, you know, trying to get their master's in criminology, lots of federal law enforcement mm-hmm. getting a master's degree. And this time actually works really, really well for them. In fact, it might have actually started at six and went to nine uh, because they get off work and they're able to get to the university and get started. So lots of firearms in the room. Um, <laughs> that, w- that was that was kind of eye-opening. And um, I'm sitting in this class and at some point, because uh, I, I, I distinctly remember this, um, uh, Larry was presenting a paper that was just about to be published. It was like it was just going to press, and uh, so he'd, and he'd handed out some like off prints of it, and um, there, there was a table in there. And somewhere along the line, I look at the table and, it's, and there was just something something about it wasn't right. Um, I can't remember exactly what the you know, but there was there was some either math or some labeling errors in it, and I said, yeah, but this table's all wrong. <laughs> um, now, now I realize what I was doing there, but I was a young undergraduate and remember I was going to be a naval officer, so I didn't really need to impress this criminologist sure. and the room got quiet, uh, because all the graduate students looking at me like, what in the 
fuck did you just do? Here comes the pain train. And um, yeah, and uh, and 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 there was there was a bit of coloration. Um, I was not happy, but about about a couple seconds into his tirade, he's like, "Actually, wait a minute. You're right. This is this is wrong, and and it needs to be fixed." And and then we had a break. Um, Remember, he act like actually like called the editor of the journal and said, okay, wait a minute, like, wait a minute. there's some things i got to change before we publish it. Um, and to this day, you can, I, I can't, I, somewhere I could probably find the publication, but it was um, one of Larry's publications from late 1988 or early 1989, where there's a little asterisk and it says the assistance of Jeffrey Barnes is, nice. <laughs> is greatly appreciated. Um, and then we had to write a paper in that class and I did a, really miniature kind of randomized well or not all that randomized trial but um, dealing with how information would be useful to officers while they were um, on patrol so if mm. you could give like prior call history which in 1989 uh, there were there were some um, motor da- mobile data terminals in some police vehicles some places in the world but they were that was high-end kit back then sure. yeah um, and even you know there were ju- there were just now these mobile telephones. Um, they, they were just beginning to show up in D.C. Among the wealthier of the you know, successful lawyers would have a box, you know, about the size of like four bricks um, <laughs> in their car. Yeah, you know, it would have to be in the boot. To, you know, and you, you wouldn't be able to put a suitcase in your boot to, cut, to contain the battery. Sure. Um, but uh, and it would have to be power. Like you'd have to have the car on to use it. But still, it was possible. Um, and so the question, you know, should these things be in police vehicles and, and everything else? Um, so I, I wrote my paper on that. That ended up becoming my honors thesis. Nice. Um, and then Larry said, well, you should publish this. And I said, well, why would I ever want to publish, um, you know, going into the Navy? He said, well, okay, well, when you get done with the Navy, would you consider getting a PhD with us? And I kind of said, yeah, maybe, but we'll see. Then he hired me to work on, uh, during my last semester of school, work to work on a a security law newsletter that he wrote um, through his other business. And um, then I finished up with that and I graduated and didn't really think much about it. But uh, if you think about it, I was a young ensign being commissioned into the American military in 1989. Um, everything seemed like it was like a really good career choice up until about November, December, the Berlin Wall comes down. Um, yeah. And you know, very quickly thereafter, well, there really isn't a Warsaw Pact. Um, I was deployed in the Mediterranean when the Gorbachev coup happened. Um, and we were panicking, thinking, that, you know, depending on who took over, this might be really bad. But in the end, of course, it ended up just being the, the dissolution of the Soviet Union. So by the time I was finishing my first tour, um, and which would have been in 1993 or so, mm-hmm. um, the question was, well, where to move on to? Um, and I had a really good commanding officer who called in some favors and got me a really good posting to a relatively new ship that would have really set me up in the U.S. Navy pretty well. Um, but we were also electing a new president who made it pretty clear that the military was going to get smaller. Sure. Um, and I, I was still in touch with Larry Sherman. I... We'd, on occasion, I'd go home on leave, and we'd meet up for dinner in Washington D.C. and we'd talk about things, and we'd send letters back and forth, snail mail, and like yeah. in my case, helicopter mail, because that's how mail got delivered. Um, and 
and he started talking about graduate school and said, uh, look, you know, if, if you think you're getting out of the Navy, what about doing a PhD like we talked about three or four years ago? Um, and I, you know, at that point, I was, uh, I'd met the woman I was going to marry. I, Very nice. Um, and she was, she was tolerant of my deployment. She was <laughs> tolerant of me being at sea. She was tolerant of my duty nights because... At least in the American Navy, you you sleep on board about one every, out of every four nights, um, even when the ship's in port. Which means that that's you know that's one night out of every four that you can't go out on dates. You can't because uh, there need to be enough people to fight fires and that sort of thing. So, oh, right. um, so I was you know I was basically in command of the ship one at one out of every four nights at that point, and um, it, it it just seemed like this seems like a good idea. You know, the military is getting smaller. Um, she, we probably don't have a future if I decide I'm going to stay in the Navy because she doesn't want to live that kind of life. Yeah. Um, so, but I also didn't want to get all my degrees from the same place. Um, and so I said, well, like, where else can I go to school? He said, well, why don't you go do a master? You've been out of criminology, out of school for four years. Why don't you go do a master's in Cambridge? So uh, that seemed like a really good idea. And I distinctly remember a conversation. I, I, I had a great commanding officer, Gilbert P. Lazon, um, heaviest Boston accent you have ever heard. Boston. Yeah, just heavy, heavy Boston accent, um, leading to all kinds of great quotes. Um, at one point in the Mediterranean, we were involved in a large uh, battle group with, I think, a British carrier and our carrier, and we had gotten done refueling on the south side of the formation, and they said, you need to get to the north side of the formation, and... Uh, our captain tried to do what you're never supposed to do, which was cut in front of the carrier to get there. Um, and eventually, uh, we called it the bubble. You, you you have this like soap bubble in your hand. You're holding it, and that and that is the picture of where all the other ships are, what direction they're going, if they're going to hit you, and if there's any other ships like commercial shipping coming through, where all them are going, and what's going to happen. And he lost his bubble, and and he just says, "Is it?" Holy crap, I've completely lost it here. Oh my God, get me the fuck out of here. So there, um, yeah. and so I end up, we say, we turn back to the south. I come around going, go to recommend going astern of the carrier. Well, it's like, I get us a course of it that we're relative, going to relative safety. He's like, okay, give me a course to get the station. He said, well, well, Captain, I don't think we want to go back through the middle of the formation. Go back there. Fuck no. I'd rather cut my own balls off and stuff them in my sacks. So what was your rank in the... Uh, by so I entered as an ensign and finished as a lieutenant. Nice. Um, or a lieutenant. As, yeah, yeah, lieutenant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, so, but then I remember having a conversation. So like, I can get you this other ship. You know, you'd be, you, you, you'd, it's, it's brand new. It's an Aegis-class cruiser. You'd, it'd be great. You'd, you'd, you'd be fire control officer. It'd be wonderful. Uh, so, uh, um, but what else are you going to do? I said, well, I actually have applied and been accepted to a graduate program at Cambridge. Cambridge? You mean the one in England? <laughs> Not the one in Boston? Oh, fuck. You should go there. <laughs> so um, at that point, the, the whole Navy thing sort of died. So I wrote my letter of resignation, um, figured out what college I was going to be in and everything, and ended up here. Um, really, which college were you at? I was at Queens. Oh, nice. Yeah. nice. Um, which... In true Jeff Barnes fashion, I, I picked by creating a spreadsheet um, <laughs> of all the different constituent colleges at Cambridge University. 
measuring them on important attributes like um, how close they are to the Institute of Criminology, yeah, um, how close they are to other facilities, how old they were, and um, all kinds of other things. Mm. Um, yeah. And uh, and Queens kind of coming up at the top of the list. It is actually really close. Yeah, no, it's um, close. Yeah. Um, what I didn't know was that they were actually not going to house me in college, and I was right. going to be like three miles away in Newnham. Right. Um, That's close, right? Yeah. yeah. What, 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 what's a little 45-minute walk there and back every single day? Um, yeah. But, look, I, I, coming to Cambridge was uh, a, just, a, you know, coming from the sea, it's just, it was actually a really good experience in a lot of ways. Um, you know, there were plenty of my fellow Emma, um, MPhil students with, unhappy with how much work there was, unhappy with this. Um, from a young naval officer's perspective, this is great. Um, I've got a room. I don't have to share it with anybody. I don't have to share it with seven other people. Um, it's all mine. It never gets underway. I don't have to wake up at midnight and walk in front of this window to make sure it doesn't hit anything. Uh, I don't have to stand watch. Um, I don't have to be armed. All I have to do is go to this library, read books, and write about it. Oh, I can do that. That's nothing. Um, so you know, that year in Cambridge was a, a really, really important reintroduction to the world of criminology. And then I went back to the University of Maryland to my PhD. Mm. I didn't really stay there very long because the PhD project, after I'd sort of done some base-level coursework and taken my comprehensive exams, which... Um, for any for any University of Maryland people listening, I will say that the fact that they got rid of those comprehensive exams is is just a travesty of judgment, <laughs> and everyone should have to take the theory and general comp. Um, even the people in engineering should have to take the criminology comps because um, it just proves something. Damn it! Uh, but after I was there about two years, uh, Larry said, "Look, I one of the things you could write your PhD on is." on uh, procedural justice. We have a randomized trial going on in Canberra, in Australia. I'd always wanted to see Australia. So we really need we really need some data support on this project. Won't you please go there? Um, so I went there. Uh, and by the time Aggie and I were married, and off we went to Australia. She gave up her job to go with me. Uh, and we lived in Canberra for about, oh, I lived there for about a year and a half or a little bit more. And she lived there for a year. And we did this randomized trial of restorative justice conferencing for four different groups of offenders. It was great. Nice. Um, and that's why when the opportunity came to go back to Western Australia, which is, you know, right next door. Well, basically. Yeah, yeah, I mean, just down the road. It's like yeah. New York to LA, basically. Um, yeah, yeah. Maybe. Maybe more like Norfolk to San Diego, but yeah, okay, sure. but, yeah, but but uh, but pretty close. But when the opportunity came to go back to Australia, I was like, oh yeah, I want to get back there. Mm, so, nice. Um, so was Larry involved in the institute back then as well, Cambridge? No, he was still at the University of Maryland. Um, so his return to the institute didn't happen. So he was at the University of Maryland. I went to Canberra, basically earned a, it was a job. I was earning a salary, but I earned the right to use the data. In my dissertation, that I returned to the U.S. in '97, or yeah, or maybe yeah, maybe not, maybe '98. No, it would have been '97. Um, returned there, um, 
still working for the Restorative Justice Project in Canberra, just on doing data analysis, but eventually got my thesis out the door at the end of 98, mm-hmm. um, then took a job at the University of Pittsburgh. And Larry, right about that time, um, moved from the University of Maryland to the University of Pennsylvania. Yep. So I, um, I'd already taken the job at the University of Pittsburgh, so I went there for a couple of years until he managed to say, why don't you come across the University of Pennsylvania? So I did that. Nice. Um, but he, he moved here in, God, it would be 2006, I think, 2006, 2007. Because I remember, I remember him telling me that he was moving to Cambridge. Mm-hmm. Um, we met up in the northern New York at a cabin he had in the Adirondack Mountains. And he said, well, you can use our cabin. So my whole family goes up there. And he says, oh, well, by the way, I'm the new Wolfson professor at Cambridge. Yeah. Um, yeah, I might add actually just briefly. So yeah. Professor Lawrence Sherman, he was the former director of the Cambridge Institute of Criminology here. Um, and he was also instrumental in getting me to Cambridge in the first place because I was doing a tour, as I mentioned in one of the previous podcasts. And when I came to Cambridge and told him what I was interested in, which was police legitimacy, he was like, oh, you must meet justice. You must meet all these people. Mm. And then took me to Darwin College and took me out for lunch and chatted to me about the program and, and why it's good to do it here. Um, but yeah, so talk a bit about uh, Cambridge criminology and their links with policing and how you then move from here to Western Australia? So, yeah, so the... Just thinking of it, I'm obviously picking up like little Australian linguistic, ling, linguistic ticks. Every AFL football match ever, they interview every player after, and, they, and they'll ask them a question that's not a yes or a no question. It'll be like, so how do you think went, how do you think things went today? And the first words out of his mouth every time, like, yeah, nah, just, uh... <laughs> it's like, it wasn't a yes or no question, so why are you answering with yeah or nah? But especially, why are you answering with both? <laughs> <laughs> yes, this is Australian yeah. terminology, yeah. yeah, for sure. Um, so you know, the the policing context when I first arrived here in '93 was was kind of tenuous. I remember distinctly we had um, two Met police officers on the course with us. Um, the Met was paying for them to do their their MPhil degree. Um, at that point, and nowadays there are it's actually there's two different MPhil degrees. Back then there was only one. Mm-hmm. Um, I have no idea what they wrote on at all because they seem to be in the bars and out on boats rowing. Um, most of the time. That sounds familiar. Yeah. So it was not, it didn't, I mean, some of the topics that were being done in my year were just bizarre. Mine, even mine wasn't particularly focused on policing, the thesis I wrote, um, that if anyone ever really has insomnia or, um, <laughs> or you know, has some kind of sleep disorder they want to cure, it's apparently in the Institute Library and you can pull it out and um, just completely bore yourself. I think there's still typos in it. <laughs> um but yeah, like, like what a different world it was to submit a thesis in 1993. Um, you know, there was no email was a thing. In fact, I, you know, I probably wouldn't be married, um, <laughs> but for email because my uh, we actually got engaged the Christmas I was in Cambridge. She came across, but most of the time we were apart. And how did you propose uh, on the King's College Bridge? Of course, yes, very nice, yes. Amazing. Um, so uh, on the 23rd of December, mm-hmm. and then we went to Somerset for the for Christmas holidays because I had a South African neighbor at Queens, 
um, South African neighbor had friends who hate winter. Um, so they had a house in England. They had a house in South Africa, and they were wherever winter wasn't. Yeah, winter here is terrible. Yeah. For those who don't know, uh, it gets dark at like 3.30 in the afternoon. Yeah, I have distinct memories of being in the old Institute Library, looking at my watch and saying, it's 2.30, I probably should head home before it gets too dark. <laughs> <laughs> we did have a 45-minute walk. So. Yeah, and then, and then I would get home like just when I was like getting just a little bit too dark. Um, yeah, it's... It, it is it is very very dark and but it, at least in those days we had to submit it by like the second or third week of may and we couldn't leave cambridge until the 18th of june and there's nothing to do like it basically goes in for marking and you're just waiting around for it to get marked mm. and you had to spend a certain you had to spend a certain number of days within the limits of cambridge and you couldn't really go anywhere and I remember handing in that thesis where whatever building we handed on the other side of the river, um, somewhere down by like the Anchor Pub, yeah, yeah. was where you handed in, and um, registry office, yeah, and then um, walking to a bookstore and picking up a novel as thick as I could possibly find because I hadn't read anything but criminology for eight or nine months, and just sitting under a tree under like just the like, glorious May and June of just like nothing to do but like go punting and read books and sleep and. Yeah. yeah, kind of a weird way to end an academic degree, though. Just like waiting around for the your punting be released so you can go home. So, so punting um, is done on a river, and you basically stand at the, the river boat, a small boat, uh, and you use a, a pole to move the boat along. Yes. Yeah. And you have to stand on the proper end. Yes. Yes. There's a proper end, and then there's the Oxford end, which is the improper end. Right. Yeah. And people fall off all the time. It's quite funny. Yeah, and that's not water you want to fall into. No. At all. No. Um, Another little factoid about Cambridge is that the river that flows through it upstream basically passes through a large bit of land in which they graze cattle. So you, if you fall into it, you're pretty much falling into cow shit. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but, you know, what a great way to, to end. But they, the, the police connection to Cambridge wasn't – there were a few policing scholars, um, but it – the, the practical element of like where is the criminology going? Um, there were people doing a little bit of practical work, but there were also people doing just sort of a lot of theoretical. Um, yeah. I'm never leaving my office. I'm just going to sit here and read Foucault and talk about, um, you know, so real, yeah, yeah, and and write about how Foucault is rele- relevant to the modern criminal justice yeah, system. Yeah. And um, what was the other expression? Modernity. I took a lot of classes that talked about modernity. I never actually understood what the word meant. And, um, and the word paradigm, I never, there were a lot, there were lots of readings about different paradigms. I never actually <laughs> found out what the word paradigm meant. I still don't have a firm understanding of it, despite reading the, the definitions in the dictionary and other places. It never really helps. Yeah. Um, paradigm apparently means some big flowery thing that you're too stupid to understand. <laughs> yeah, it's like yeah. an overarching discourse, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. And I very much wanted to work on a more practical sense. And to that extent, the experimental criminology where you end up randomly assigning one group to get treated one way and one group to get treated another way and then seeing the effect of that um, and actually measuring the effect of it and being able to tell police that, well, this is the effect of restorative justice conferencing for this kind of offender. Um, that means a lot more to me. It's much more kind of much much more hands-on, much more um, directly relevant, yeah. um, rather than kind of flowery um, statements about 
how modernity might impact modern policing. Yeah, 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 yeah for sure. So now, uh, what exactly do you do for Waypol? Um, and are you the first director of... Yes, I, I, I am the, the first ever uh, director of criminology for the Western Australia Police Force. But even in Australia, is there other, other directors of criminology in policing institutes? Um, not, not per se. Yeah. The, there, there's a very large movement towards evidence-based policing mm. within Australia. Um, especially Queensland. Yeah, especially Queensland, especially Western Australia, um, now starting up in Victoria as well. Yes. Um, New Zealand's wholly on board. Yes. So um, this this is definitely becoming a thing, but I don't think a lot of people have worked out exactly, well, what's the best way to do this? So Queensland is doing it one way. I should probably turn that off so we don't have to listen to that. But Queensland is doing it one way, and uh, they're focusing on taking police officers and putting them in the universities as like fellows for yes. two years. So that's like, that's your job as a police fellow is you're being paid by Queensland police service to go be in a university and talk to academics. And, um, our model in Western Australia just happened to be different where we're, we, we brought the criminologists out of the university and brought them into the organization. I think that that has some real advantages. Uh, a huge bit of experimental criminology is just the accident of being in a room when an idea first comes up, um, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, we've decided that we want to um, we want to move into body worn video, and uh, we have we we've just got a funding line that will let us purchase body worn video, but we're going to have to spread that over a number of years because we can't outfit everybody all at once, and also our um, our ability the well. Any Australians listening will know that the internet is a kind of patchy thing. Um, you, you're laughing because you know the pain. Um, the, the pain of... It, it could be a perfect thing because in Melbourne, I don't know. My, oh, you probably, you probably just have fiber everywhere. That's quite like, good, Like yes. every dog just has fiber running out its ass. Um, yeah, it is no, true. It no, is in, true. In, in, in Perth, it is... Um, you, you pick the wrong suburb and there will be no fiber. Uh, uh, the fiber will come into a node... You know, that's three kilometers from your house and the rest of the way will have to be transported by a copper, you know, which basically means that it would be quicker to like hire a kid on a bicycle to go get the web pages, print them out and then and then like run them, run them over to you. Um, but um, the just simple fact in, in Perth is that not all of our police stations have a strong enough connection to support the uploading of a lot of video at the end of a shift. Oh, really? Um, so, Christ. but by being in the room when this idea first comes up, I can say, look, we can actually run a study out of this because um, some state, we, we're not going to outfit everybody at once. Some stations are going to get it probably based on what their NBN connection looks like. <laughs> um, sorry, National Broadband Network connection. Yeah. Um, it, there's no more painful term in Australia than, than that. It's so spotty. It's awful. Um and, Very expensive. And, 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 I, and I will only say that if there was ever a nation on earth <laughs> that should have like embraced the internet and said like everyone is getting the fastest connection possible, even if you use 90% of that bandwidth for porn and video <laughs> games, that 10% is still so important to our yeah. national economy that it's worth it. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. But no, they instead say, you know, we mine lots of copper. Copper is a wonderful thing. Everyone should have copper. And... But, uh, but by being in the room, as be, being part of the police force, by being in the room, being able to say, you know, there's, a, there's, there's information we can eke out of this sort of natural experiment that's going on. Or somebody talks about a new thing they want to do with young offenders. 
you, and you say, okay, well, how many offenders might qualify? Well, there's probably hundreds of offenders in this area that qualify. How many can we actually support with the money we have? Well, maybe only 20. Okay, well, that's a perfect place to do a randomized trial. Yeah. Um, and being able to convince, being able to introduce this idea of randomization and get to, well, how is that fair? That means we're going to be picking 20 kids that won't be getting it. It's like, you just told me there's going to be 80 kids or 100 kids because there's 120 kids you can give this to. You can only do it to 20. Um, you, already, you just told me there's 100 kids you weren't going to give it to. Why were you comfortable not giving it to them? Yeah. But you don't want to do it. And now it's fair, if anything, because it's randomized. All right. It, it is fair. And they said, well, we were going to pick the kids that we were going to give it to so that we'd make sure that it would be that it would succeed. Um, which which really goes into yeah, it it those little opportunities if you're not in the room for those for, if you're not in the room at the right time you're not involved in that discussion in kind of the first two months of that idea what would inevitably happen is what has always happened which is we're going to go forth with this we're going to go down to this neighborhood we're going to start up this youth program we're going to pick the 20 families that are most engaged with the police support their kids show that those kids didn't offend and call it a success. And a lot of those kids weren't going to offend anyway because their parents are the kinds of people that are engaged with the police. Yes, exactly. Uh, and so we just wasted money treating kids that didn't need it. Um, we never got our, our intervention in the path of kids who might actually need it. And we never tested it among those kids with a comparison group of kids who also needed it, but just through a lottery didn't get it. Yeah. And you know, how well do these programs work? Well, maybe not, maybe not good at all. Maybe some of them backfire. Um, you know, maybe it's not a good idea to start up a youth program where you take all a, a bunch of crime-prone kids and let them hang out together <laughs> yeah. and talk about what they're going to do when the youth center closes at 8.30 at night and they're still together and they need to find something to do until midnight when they're going to go home. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. Some of these things could really backfire. Hmm. So uh, <coughs> what's... Where Paul, if you can say, working on at the moment in terms of these areas? Well, where's so, the direction going? Um, the, I would tell you the other real distinction about being inside the police. Yes. Um, when I'm when I was when academic career at say University of Pennsylvania or here at Cambridge, academic life usually is I've got one or two or maybe three projects that I've got going on in terms of research. And they get almost all my focus. In the meantime, I'm, of course, writing grant applications to support future research. I may, be, I may submit six of those, seven of those, eight of those. Some people are really more aggressive than I was. Yeah. Um, but with the full knowledge that maybe half of them, if I'm lucky, will get funded, maybe even less. But all I really need is one or two of them to come through. And then they'll take the place of one or two of the ones that I'm doing now. But... Yeah, for them, I, I have the time to really focus on this project and really guide it forward, and make decisions. And but I arrived in in Perth, and it was well, we have already got sixteen things kind of going. Yeah. Um. Here's forty six other ideas that we're kind of developing, and my thought was like, well, how on earth am I going to be able to do that? And you need to be able to build a team, which, in sort of the in a university environment where you need to get grants to hire graduate students or whoever. To be on your team, everything's grant dependent, so you don't really know. Well, I, you know, how many people will I be able to hire, and do I really know these people all that well? Graduate students come, graduate students go. Mm. Uh, but in Western Australia, we've been able to build a really good team of police officers who have been through this course, um, civilian analysts who 
help us with the data. Some of them have been through the, this course at Cambridge. Nice. Um, and then some of the senior people in the agency have also been through the course who understand what we're talking about when we're trying to get permission to do things. Makes a big difference. It makes it? it makes an enormous difference. Yeah. Um, but having that many projects going on at once. But as we sit here, we we have a randomized trial going on for hotspot patrolling. Nice. Um, nice. It is supposed to be comparing bicycle patrols, uh, so cops on bicycles, and whether and and compare the hotspots they get to the hotspots that other officers and cars get. Why bikes versus cars? Well, because that's what the local, local commander had gone and gotten extra money from the government to kit his officers out in Lycra and, <laughs> and, the, and got the bicycles and um, yeah. got them you know, special um, clothing and equipment so they could ride their bike comfortably while carrying the amazing amount of kit that police officers have to carry. Yeah. Um, you know, by the time you put a firearm, ammunition, uh, a taser, this is some pretty heavy stuff to be carrying around and then you didn't get on a bike. Yeah. Um, it gets to be more of a challenge. So that's what they wanted to study. But the n- nice thing, again, about being in the room at the right moment was to say, well, wait a minute, we can do that study, but we can also leverage this hotspot experiment to do something that no other hotspot experiment has ever done. So in a typical hotspot experiment, we would randomly assign... So what is a hotspot? Uh, so, well, a hotspot is an area, of, a concentrated area of crime occurrence. And what we know is that a very, very, very small amount of the geography accounts for the vast majority of offending. Yeah. So in this local area around one of our stations in Perth, or the Perth metropolitan area at least, we were able to identify 40-some grids on a map that were hotter than all the others. We then picked 15 of them to be our spots. Now, what would have happened in those 15 spots in a traditional hotspot experiment? We would have divided them in half and said... All right, well, these seven are going to get patrolled every day, and these eights aren't, aren't going to get patrolled at all. And not surprisingly, when they do this, they tend to find, well, the ones that got all this police attention for three months of people. Now, we know that cops don't always do what they're supposed to do. <laughs> yeah. uh, and so those seven spots may have not gotten their patrols every day, but they at least got a little bit more patrolling every day than the eight spots that were the control group. Um, but this thing then goes on for three or four months. Not surprisingly, at the end of all that, they find that, yeah, if you spend a lot more police resources in there. But it's also not realistic. The eight spots that were hot are also going to get some background patrol. Um, you're never, re- never going to have a, like a control group where the local cops don't know that those spots are hot. They live there. They work there. They know. Um, and what I was interested in was uh, a, a side question, which is, do we really need to go every day? So what we're doing with those 15 spots is we pick three bike spots and three car spots every day, and the others are left fallow. Um, the next day, we randomly pick more. And, and so the police attention's always moving around, and it's more of a decay thing. So if yeah, there's yeah. a spot that at random that we haven't been at for five or six days, then is the, do we start seeing crime start to go up in those spots that, have, that are further away from their last patrolling? And then on the side of that, of course, when we are doing bikes versus cars, we have found some interesting things there. So, oh, um, so the bike patrols are much, much, I mean, enormously more successful really? at getting to the hotspots and really? getting in there. Um, so every police officer in this experiment is carrying around a mobile phone. That mobile phone's pinging every two seconds. Ah, uh, yes, nice. Um, so we know exactly where they've been. <laughs> um, that's a lot of data. That's yep. about six million data points now oh, since August. And... Um, but the bikes are much more compliant about getting to the hotspots and staying there. Especially, uh, the cars will go to the hotspots, 
they'll drive through them in two seconds and move on to the, you know, they were actually just on their way to someplace else and accidentally drove through it. Yeah. Um, the, the bikes, they will deliberately go there. And when they get there, they'll stop and they'll stay. We want them to stay for 20 minutes and they, they stay for much longer. Some of that is because the cars have, you know, I talked about the mobile data terminals I did when I was a young undergraduate. Now, of course, every car has those. Uh, every car has a computer-aided dispatch system. And they've got a screen of interesting possible jobs that they could go to sure. at any moment. And here they are sitting in this hotspot. And they're supposed to sit there for 20 minutes and there's nothing happening. Yeah. And they look, you know, I could go to that domestic right now. Uh, I'd rather go to that domestic. Uh, and they'll log on to that job and off they go. Mm. Um, the bikes actually don't have CAD screens. Ah, interesting. Yeah. Uh, so. Um, and another little interesting factoid, because uh, because our computer-aided uh, dispatch system does keep track of when people take breaks, and, and by their union agreement, they get to take a certain number of food breaks, they call them crib breaks, um, to have their dinner or their lunch or whatever. I can tell you that the bikes spend 27% time, uh, more time eating every day than the car officers do. Got to replace those lost calories somehow. So, right, yeah. right, of course, yeah, yeah. of course, yeah. Uh, so, you know... So, so, you know, it, it's that opportunity to say, okay, yeah, we could do a bike versus car thing, but we could also do this other thing, which is, do we have to go every day? Um, is going, like, based on average, one out of every five days, just about the same as going every day? Mm -hmm. And could we, therefore, when we do hotspot patrols, can we mix it up and go to different places rather than just going to the same place day after day after day? So I'm wondering, um, given that, we know exercise is beneficial for well-being. Are you recording any measures around well-being of the officers? Believe it or not, we have a, we have a great econometrics graduate of the University of Western Australia who's working for us who had to learn how to take blood pressure. Um, nice. So at the beginning of the study, he went down and did some um, physical measurements, you know, pulse rate, um, blood pressure, and this sort of thing. And I think weight took their weights as well. Nice. Um, not everybody was really happy with that, but we are going to measure that at the end of the study, which is supposed to end about June, um, to see whether those things have gotten better. And of course, there's a control group of, of yeah. car officers who've been sitting. You know, people do transfer around too, as well. So, uh, one of the other interesting things about going to policing is that you know there, there are certain tick marks of training. So. Uh, the, the bike team recently got a new graduate of the police academy, which she has not been bicycle trained. I, I wasn't aware that you needed training, but uh, <laughs> you know, I always thought this was something you, you, know, you never forget how to ride a bike. Um, but yeah, you have to have, really? you have, to have bicycle training. So um, she is, she is a, a big challenge in our data because although she's assigned to a bike team, she's not a bike officer. And since everyone has to work in pairs... Um, that means that whoever she's working with that day, even though they are bike trained, is not on a bike. So right. every day we have to move people from bike bike assignments to car assignments. Uh, and we never really know who's going to work with her on a daily basis. So it was like, I would, would have much rather got her the vaunted training. Um, although there is actually some self-defense training about how to use your bike to defend yourself. Nice. You can use it as a barrier. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah cool. Okay, so coming back now... Uh, I was at a conference and you were there too. You were presenting about machine learning uh, and criminology, which is kind of a new area. And criminology lags a bit in terms of uh, quantitative data and also perhaps more data around the natural sciences, so biology and, and evolution. Mm -hmm. You're talking about how... 
take, take us through the study first of all you're doing so um about about more well about 10 years ago now i got involved in a project when i was at the university of pennsylvania um, with the Philadelphia Department of Probation and Parole. It's, well, adults. These were adults that were on probation. At that time, their policy was that everybody gets about the same amount of supervision. Every offender that's in their caseload comes in about once a month, and they sit down with their probation officer for about 10 to 30 minutes, and that's what they get. Didn't matter if you were a young, violent offender or if you were a 65-year-old who was cashing your dead husband's social security checks. Either both of those, everybody got the same level of supervision. They wanted to stratify the risk load in their things, so in, the, in their caseload. So they could say, um, look, there's a bunch of people that are very low risk. We don't really want to expend resources supervising them. Um, there are a bunch of people, there are a smaller number of people that are very high risk and we want to intensively supervise them. And over the course of a, a number of years and setting up a lot of data and working with a statistician who's named Richard Burke at the University of Pennsylvania, he built a random forest model. And then my role in this was to hand him data to, so he could build the model. And then once the model was built, to actually make it operational. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this really opened my eyes to what these more modern techniques can do. This system is still, now in its fourth generation, is still being used uh, in Philadelphia today, that as each new probationer walks in the door, decide, are you going to go into a high-risk caseload? Are you going to go into a moderate-risk caseload? High-risk caseload, we're going to see you once a week. A moderate-risk caseload, we're going to see you once a month, almost exactly the way they used to do it. Or a low-risk caseload, where we're only going to see you every six months um, and try to do as much of it by telephone as we can. And obviously, the caseloads are much higher and low-risk. And So somebody on low-risk supervision... At one point, we did an experiment where we got them up to the point where they had 400 offenders they were working with, which is just obscene. But if all you're doing is making phone calls, it, it, it's workable. Yeah. Um, the high-risk caseloads mm-hmm. are you know, in the targeted at about 45 people, but sometimes get up to about 60, which sounds high. But then you have to account for the fact that in high risk, about half these people are going to be incarcerated at any given time anyway. Yeah. Um, so that actually goes down to like 30 people that are sort of still on the streets and coming in for supervision. Sure. Uh, that, and so that's one place where this has been done. I then moved on to sort of try to learn how to build these models for myself um, with a lot of help from Richard. And um, now there's a very similar system operating in Durham in police custody um, so that the police custody sergeant has access to information about whether this person is likely to commit a new serious offense in the next two years whether they're likely to commit a non-serious offense or whether they're likely to not offend at all. And a little bit controversial because it is a machine making these predictions. Um, Instead of, you know, well, actually, I think the instead of is actually a really good question. Uh, One of the things I found in in working in this sort of machine learning, artificial intelligence space is everybody wants to compare it to perfection. You know, yeah, but you may, like, a a third of the time, your your model's wrong. Okay, Um, yeah, but... If it's not as though the criminal justice system is not based on predictions, every sentence made by every judge going back to the Middle Ages, um, you know, the the judges would burn witches because, well, you're a witch and you'll keep doing witchcraft in our city. That's what our prediction is. So we can't let you just sit here and, you know, cast spells on us and turn us into newts. Um, We we need you. We need you to stop. So uh, every 
every arrest is essentially a forecast. Yeah. Um, a modern officer at the scene of a domestic violence makes an arrest because I need to get this guy away from her or this is just going to keep happening tonight. That's one of the things that they're considering. And when, they, when we make bail decisions about who gets released from custody, when we make decisions about who we're going to prosecute and who we're not going to prosecute, there's an element of that. It's not, not the only thing we worry about. But one of the things we, we worry about is, well, do I need to do this to stop it from happening in the future? So we've always worried about predictions. So when you're comparing a, a, some kind of machine learning model to it, the question is not, are we doing better than, are we getting it perfectly right? The question is, are we doing any better than, the, than human beings would without any guidance? Yeah. And the answer to that is almost invariably yes. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Um, and so there was some uh, controversy in the lecture, and uh, we, there's a, possibly a member from the media over who quizzed, uh, what's, what's his name, Mike, um, uh, I forget his name, but anyway, yeah. about why it's predicting for race. And I think some of you were caught up before the Home Office to discuss this issue. Yeah. So, and, and look, we had, the, we had the same issue in Philadelphia. I think every machine learning model goes through this. And my thinking on it has evolved quite a bit even in the last year. So in any of these models, and you know, it doesn't even have to be a machine learning model. We could go back to like basic regression that existed, say, in the 90s and the early 2000s that, um, that, we, that we teach graduate students about. Um, but the question is, you, you have certain variables that are going to predict later behaviors. And you can or cannot decide to throw one, a race model or an ethnicity, or ethnicity predictor or a race predictor into that model. Uh, you can, or gender, or postcode. Uh, you can you can put these things in there. You cannot put these things in. Now, in logistic regression, maybe your model gets better. Maybe it doesn't if you put those in there. But in machine learning, it's very very clear. Every predictor you put in the model makes the model more accurate. Um, at worst, it just doesn't, and you, it never makes things worse. Yeah. It just gets ignored, and it's basically a, a zero in terms of predicting these things. So the question of whether you put it in there or whether you don't often comes down to politics. Now, to a certain extent, machine learning uh, makes that real easy. You can decide that you're not going to put it in there, and the model will still be kind of accurate. You lose a little bit of prediction accuracy, but if it's not that much, you make a political decision. Boy, arguing about having a, an ethnicity predictor or a postcode predictor, I'm going to spend all my time arguing about it, and whether it's fair or unfair... Why do that for just a couple extra percentage points of accuracy? I'll live without the accuracy. Mm. But you have to remember that um, artificial intelligence is its no smarter than the data that it's given to be developed from. And, and the data is often flawed and biased. And the da- data is often flawed and biased because look, both, of us, uh, both of us have our experiences in Australia. We know the vast disproportionality of Aboriginal Australians in the criminal justice system. I mean, it's, it's way, way, way up there. Yeah. Um, now, that, that outcome, if you look at the prison population, doesn't come about through just one decision. It's it, much like, a, like an airplane crash when they analyze these things. It, it, it wasn't one thing that brought the plane down. It was a sequence of events. All, all those events had to happen in order. For the result to happen, and yeah. starting and, with colonization. Well, yeah, starting with colonization, yeah. but then, but then, in terms of, of a more tactical, immediate thing, it's like, all right, well, did the police even did this crime even come to the police attention? Did a neighbor pick up the phone and say, "Well, there's a domestic going on over there"? That could be influenced 
by the ethnicity of the people involved. Yeah. You know, the, the location of which this event is happening, is it happening indoors or is it happening outdoors? That can be influenced. And there's about a thousand steps before we get to the point of that offender being incarcerated. Yes. Um, and all of those have little nudges. Um, maybe in some cases so small that you couldn't even detect them statistically. But when you add them all up, this is the overall effect we get. Um, But if you're building a model that is looking at criminal justice outcomes and saying, who's going to be rearrested? Who's going to be reincarcerated? Who's going to fail while they're on probation? All those thousands of little nudges that happen due to that that could be ascribed to ethnicity, they, they add up, which means that our outcomes, of course, will show up that show that exact same disproportionality. Yeah, there is no way to get around that. Uh, and one of the things that these models, well, you know, you're just reinforcing the same race biases that exist in the system. But again, what's the alternative? What is the alternative to doing that? Do we just we say, well, okay, we couldn't get it perfect. We didn't eliminate racial bias by building one model. Therefore, let's not use it. And let's just go back to using the same human decisions that, that, yeah. That, yeah. that made this racially biased yeah. outcome in the first place. That's just, that's really going to perpetuate it. Yeah. And, and like the flip side is like, you didn't have to act on this data, right? So you have no. the data there and you say, okay, these are a problem. We can see this biased data coming in. Mm. We know it's overrepresentative. Right. Um, what can we do to address like at the preventative stage, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, one of the, one of the things I've learned in building, um, sort of artificial intelligence stuff for people is that the 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 first question is not who do you want to define as or uh, who what do you want to predict well that that's an interesting question but you can predict all kinds of things uh, the most important question to address in when you're starting this road is what are you going to do like when this model comes up and says they're high risk and don't worry about what what high risk means we'll define that later but when you know that somebody is high risk whatever that means what are you going to do and probably even more importantly, what are you going to do when it's low risk? If you're building a model that's predicting whether someone's going to be rearrested in two years and low risk is they're not, why are you going to do anything at all? If now we, we do things in the criminal justice system for more reasons than just preventing the next offense. It's true. You could let those people go and do nothing with them and they wouldn't reoffend. But are you really going to let a murderer go because they've murdered the only person in the world they hate enough to kill? And there never will be another person they hate. So, um, so that's fine. Just, yeah, just let you go. So, of course, we do punish for reasons that are beyond uh, the prevention of future crime. Yeah. But that, that decision about what you're going to do affects the cost. You know, if somebody's high risk, are you going to do one-on-one cognitive behavioral therapy with them for 26 consecutive weeks, uh, meeting them twice a week? Uh, well, that's really expensive. You can't afford to do it with that many. Uh, which means you need to define high risk so that it's only a tiny portion of the population and you need to be very limited to how many false positives yes. you allow to be forecast as high risk because they're costing you a fortune if you get it wrong. If your solution instead is we're just going to give everybody a bunch of uh, omega-3 fish oil tablets <laughs> because that's supposed to help prevent violence. Um, I'm well, taking them right now, actually. Yeah, I have them this morning. Yeah. And, 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 and by violence. And, 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 and look how nonviolent you are. <laughs> But you, you've only hit me three times since the start of this interview and set me on fire once. Oh, that's beautiful. Uh, About four times. Yeah, well, exactly. It was that fourth time that we prevented by that omega-3 time. <laughs> but you know, the, the cost of what you're going to do defines how many errors you can tolerate in different areas of the model. Yes. Um, Interesting. Good point. And uh, very, very often, 
that's a very hard question for criminal justice policymakers to really address. I just want to know who's going to do these things. I, you know, then I'll figure out what I'm going to do. And it's no, no, no. You need to figure out what you're going to do, and then we'll figure out what what high risk means. Then we'll figure out what percentage you can tolerate going into high risk. Sure. Um, that's going to address everything else. But if you, uh, so we had a, a consulting firm come through Western Australia. Um, who does really good work, but they built a domestic violence forecasting model for us. But it was going to identify something like a thousand people every week out of the general Perth population that were at high risk for committing domestic violence. Well, a, what are we supposed to do with a thousand people a week? You know, even if it's just a door knock, that's that is like all that's all of our patrol officers knocking on doors all the time. Yeah, um, knocking, they're not home. You have to come back. Also, some of those thousand people haven't done anything recently. So we have no reason really to talk to them. You just knock on the door blindly and say, well, hello, Jeffrey Barnes. I just want to let you know that we think you're going to beat up your wife and you really shouldn't. We can't arrest you for it. You actually haven't been arrested in 20 years. You're under no threat from us. But we just thought, tell you, calm down this week. Although in all likelihood, that kind of person wouldn't be on the list. But still, what what these models kind of need is maybe you only need to really forecast people that you have some leverage over, you know. You just got sentenced to probation. Now we have to decide how you're going to be supervised. We're going to use a model to do that because we have some leverage over you. Yeah. Um, in Durham, you've just been brought into custody. We can either give you bail or we cannot give you bail. We can caution you or we can prosecute you. Those decisions all have to happen in the next couple hours. Now's a good time for a forecast. Yeah, yeah decent. So moving forward a bit to uh, police improvement because it's become a kind of hot topic in the media and also, um, for example, Queensland Police, I know, are running programs for procedural justice and testing their effectiveness mm-hmm. and so on. One of the biggest problems, and I found this too from just chatting to police officers, is the problem of police recruits going out onto the street and then kind of being told that this is the real world now, this law doesn't apply anymore. Right. Uh, what do you think might be part of the solution to that problem? And what is Waypole doing about that? Yeah, I... And, and, I, and I probably overextend this model, but I, I tend to think a lot about our police education, our criminological education, in terms of where medicine was over, say, the last 120 years. Yeah. I can almost guarantee that young physicians in, say, 1910 would get out of whatever schooling they had and show up at a hospital and be told, yeah, forget all that bullshit that you learned <laughs> Um, although, did they use the word bullshit in 1910? Well, let's assume they did. But you know, forget all that bullshit you learned there. All that anatomy and all those lessons aren't going to help you a bit here. The thing is, what you need to do is you need to learn how to bleed these patients right now. Here's your razor. Here's your bleeding bowl. Go bleed them so that you let the you know, balance the humors in the body. And, <laughs> um, and don't listen to that microbe theory. That's all. You know, that that's just absolute bullshit. Um, thing right. going on, yeah. yeah you know, like, like I've been treating look, look, kid. I've been treating patients for thirty years with no mask and without washing my hands, and people die. That just happens naturally. But look how many people I've saved. Um, yeah. Uh, so, you know, we are not unique in sort of the young person being told, okay, well, yeah, you learned a bunch of things in school, but now you need to ignore it. Yeah. Um, but medicine certainly got past it, right? Well, how did they get past it? Um, in one sense, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's not an instantaneous solution. It's a slow generational thing. But then there also are these disruptive events that happen. Um, like a director of criminology. Well, well, we'll, we'll see. We'll see how much that helps. Um, but you know, but 
like for example, one of the things I think in medicine happened was sort of the the, prof- the professionalization of nursing. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. You know, nurses used to be kind-hearted young women with very little thing to just to just do whatever the doctor tells you to, dear, and that's all the training you needed. Then you go into the 1950s to the 1960s, and suddenly this one actually there's schooling that's going to go on. These nurses who are ultimately going to be delivering, say, a randomized controlled trial of a, in a drug trial, get exposed to, well, this is why we do randomized trials. Yet it seems a little unfair that we flip a coin to decide who gets this life-saving treatment. But look at the history. A lot of these life-saving treatments turned out to be not so life-saving and actually were life-destroying. Yeah. Um, so you know, educating them so that when the day comes when they arrive at their hospital and it's like, okay, well... Mr. Jones is here for his chemotherapy. He's actually part of a drug trial. There's a set of bags in there that are numbered. Some of them are just normal saline, and some of them actually contain the drugs. Just hang the right number. And he might be in the control group. He may not be getting this super special new chemotherapy drug. And if it's a, that that's true, and if the new drug is good, oh well. But we learned something from Mr. Jones. And he might die a year earlier than the other patients. But we learn something from that. Yeah. And in the aggregate, that, that helps us. And, then, and that nurse can then say, yeah, all right. I learned about that. Yeah. There, there was a, you know, there, there's a really good history of well-meaning nurses sabotaging early RCTs, deliberately sabotaging it, like waiting for the doctor to go home and then switching the, the, the pills around so that you know, everybody, every patient was essentially getting a mix of placebo and the active drug um, at the same rates. Um, yeah. So, you know, but the educating of that slowly builds up over time. You know, so that that's my hope that that police there always will be an element of policing of, yeah, I know they told you not to use excessive force and that this was the definition of excessive force. But in this neighborhood, our definitions actually, you know, three meters to the left of that. And we don't like. We don't consider that to be force. That's just a matter of policy. I, I find Australian policing actually does a better job at adhering to standards than at least sort of the American model where you have 18,000 or 16,000 different forces, all with different standards. And then, then you break up all the neighborhoods in those little forces and, and yeah, those yeah. definitions really spread out. At least Australia has a very small number of police forces and they're very policy driven. Um, so there are standards, and people do know the lines that shouldn't be crossed. And when they are crossed, things happen. Yeah. Yeah. So hopefully some police officers listening and, and some recruits, what advice would you have for them as they pursue their careers? I think, that, I think the fundamental thing is to, is to recognize that much like medicine, say, 70 years ago, what you're doing right now is kind of an art. You're, you're learning an art. You're You're... You're learning just like an artist would learn how to get better making paint strokes and trial and error. And you say, okay, well, this, this seems to work better for the way that I, that I approach my work. Um, you'll learn that, well, okay, I tried something and it, and it, it seemed to work. So I'm going to keep trying that. Oh, it doesn't work with this kind of person. And that's something that you're going to accrue over the course of many, many years. Your, your education basically never stops. But you also have to recognize that like any artist, you're looking at that world through a rather narrow straw. You can only see the cases that you specifically have worked on. And that in the aggregate, there may be trends that reveal themselves that you can't see because you've only worked on a small, tiny bit of everything your agency is doing. And 
the science comes in the aggregate. The science comes from, like, in my, in my machine learning work, from taking 200,000 or 300,000 domestics over the last 10 years and putting them in the model and finding, okay, in the aggregate, this kind of person has this kind of response later on in terms of reoffending. You know, the likelihood of you, you know, there's no way you will ever go through 300,000 people, uh, no matter how many domestics you do. But the modeling I do can look and look at those aggregate trends. It doesn't mean that, that this aggregate trends are going to be right in individual cases. And you may have a better sense in those individual cases than any model ever would because those little nuances might have been washed out in the data. So there's a role for both ways to move. And medicine is still very much a combination of art and science. Yes, there are aggregate trends. Yes, we know that this drug tends to work in general, uh, 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 preventing additional heart attacks. Um, But you you may know that you tried that drug on a patient uh, three months ago, and they had kidney disease, and it just really ripped, it just destroyed their kidney function. And you're not willing to do it with another patient with kidney disease. That's not something that would have gotten picked up in the science end of it. So there's a role for both to play. Yeah. And I think, unfortunately, and I think any place would suffer from this, there's very much a, a dichotomy. It's no, it can't be both. It's, you know, the science, the people from the ivory tower are coming in and telling us what to do. And they've never been out in the streets, and they don't understand the art of what, what we do. And we should just never listen to them. Yeah. And then there's also then, the, then there's the science end of it of saying, well, I want these cops just go to the damn hot spot that I told them to. You know, I I I know that these places are hot, and I know that the that the work to which the artist back in the district might say, yeah, it is busy on Friday and Saturday nights because there's a really bad pub there. But it's Tuesday at ten thirty in the morning. It just doesn't make sense. Yeah, and, of course. Yeah, and that's the kind of thing that. So there, yeah, I I think what we need to strive for is a balance. Yeah, and uh, and we need to stop battling each other and realize that uh, that there are two sides to it, and neither side has a monopoly on the truth. Right. Perfect. Yeah. yeah. So just finally, um, do you have any advice for criminologists coming through? It's been a really revealing and continuing education being inside a police agency. The reality that. It's easy to think of the police as, well, you know, they just go out and do these things, especially in the United Kingdom, but also in Western Australia. There are just real budgetary limits, things that I should have thought of, but didn't think of. So you're doing, uh, say, foot patrols in in an entertainment district or a nighttime economy area, and there are two people that come spilling out of a pub, and they're just absolutely wailing on each other, and it's pretty violent. One of them gets cut a little bit. There's some blood coming from his or her face. You definitely have an, an, an actual bodily harm, an ABH, and you could bring both of them into custody. Um, but there is a decision to make here. It's not just what's better for them or what's going to prevent their future offending or what's going to make a better example for everybody in the street. But the reality is that if you arrest both these people or even one of them, both you and your partner are then going to go into the custody suite in the United Kingdom, and you're going to spend the better part of the next hour and a half, two hours, dealing with all the paperwork from it. And that is two hours in the in the prime hours of when the pubs are emptying out. That is going to be that you two are not going to be in that location to be a visible deterrent. So, what do we want as police leadership? What do you want them to do? Do you really want them to be off the street? And not be there and 
be in the watch house or be in the in the custody suite when a not just an ABH but a six person grievous bodily harm brawl comes out of the next next door down twenty minutes later. And where were the cops? Well, the nearest cops were actually you know three kilometers away because when those two left to make the arrest, nobody notified those over there that they should actually come over here and cover. It the the reality of these sorts of Decisions, which if you think about it, these decisions, we're, we're allowing 19-year-olds to basically make these decisions because yeah. um, they're the ones on scene. It, it is a, it, there, are, uh, there are a million tricky little questions there every day. We don't have the money to flood this area with seven teams. There's going to be one or two teams there. And, and do we really, you know, when do we want, when does it go past the limit where you absolutely have to arrest and, and when do we want to lose those resources? Is there any way to structure things so that when they go away, they only go away for 20 minutes, drop off, and then come back. But does the legislation even allow that? Do they have Do they have to fill out that paperwork and kind of state a criminal case that night in order to support that person even being in custody? The legislation may require that. Well, then what do we do? Do we go back and change the legislation? There's a million little things like that that are the reality of policing mm. um, that you know that if you're just sort of sitting in your office in a university and you're saying well why can't these cops get on my hotspots <laughs> and stay there well yeah. because because when they got to your hotspot 10 minutes in they they saw something they absolutely had to arrest for and so that hotspot visit didn't last the 20 minutes you wanted it lasted 3 minutes or 5 minutes or 10 minutes however long till that incident took place and then it ended and it ended for a very good reason but if there's I think another really good example I've seen is we, especially modern technology, kind of makes this. Uh, you know, we now have cameras on cars that read number plates, and then figure out who owns the car, and then checks their criminal history. And if there's a reason, we'll throw up an alert. And these systems, I've been in these cars now. Now that I actually work in the police, I can truthfully say that in a number of locations, both in the United Kingdom and Australia. If you just allowed those alerts to guide what you did, you'd make it about three or four kilometers from the station before you'd be halfway through your shift. Then you turn around and do the next three or four kilometers back because that thing's pinging all the time. Mm. So, again, it's just a question of resource. Every time a traffic car decides to make a stop because that box has made a noise, there there may be an even more important target that drives past while they're in the middle of it that they can't deal with because they've already committed themselves to deal with this person. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I mean, some of that goes into the, into the machine learning things I'm doing as well. You know, can we, can we make better predictions of who the really important targets are mm. rather than just throwing up an alert because you find out 90 seconds later this person uh, was actually a probationary driver and that's why the alert came up. Sure. Yeah. Do you think all police should have undergrad degrees? That's tricky. Um, and, and the reason it's tricky is because not all places are the same. Mm. Um, and especially in an American context, um, somebody may need an undergraduate degree to be working, say, as a crime analyst in Los Angeles where there's vast amounts of data. But do they really need an undergraduate degree to be a patrolman in a five-person department in, say, rural Pennsylvania? Fair. Yeah, and, and, and what's the consequence of requiring an undergraduate degree for that if this little five-person department actually just is never going to be able to afford to pay the wages of that, 
Um, yeah. That th- that's a trouble. But but what I would say is that well, I don't know that at the entry level and, and policing. I know the UK is now exper- is experimenting a little bit with direct entry people at certain ranks. But I would say that perhaps undergraduate degrees become important at a certain level, maybe like the second supervisory level. You know, it, do you, you, know you, you go in a, as a constable, fine. You then become a senior constable or a sergeant. You begin to supervise other constables. That's fine. But gee, if you want to make that next leap up and you need to think about the sort of global trends, maybe you do need some schooling there so that when an opportunity comes in to find out whether what we're doing works. You understand what a randomized trial looks like. You understand why we do them. You understand why they're fair. You understand what they're going to teach us. And you understand why... And that level level of rank is certainly what I found in every agency I've ever worked in, but especially in Western Australia. That's, That's the crucial rank. If you don't get the inspectors and the sergeants on your side... Those officers that they who work for them are never going to do anything. They will do whatever the sergeant and the inspector tell them to do. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, of course. Yeah, but because they're new and they want to impress and and they're dedicated, or they wouldn't have gone into this business in the first place. They will do if if their sergeant tells them to go stand in that box for twenty minutes, they will go stand in that box for exactly twenty minutes. Then they'll go to the next box their sergeant tells them to. Mm-hmm. But if you don't get that sergeant on side. This is bullshit. You never needed to do that. I don't know why that guy up at headquarters keeps telling us to go over there. You know, that's a stupid thing to do. Um, we're not doing it. Well, everything's going to fall apart. Yeah. So I would say that at a certain point, um, does it need to be? Does it need to be a full undergraduate degree? Does it? Do we need to kind of have different educational levels for different ranks? That probably is advisable. Mm-hmm. You know, we have a deputy commissioner in Western Australia who came here, and it, I mean, you can have a fascinating conversation with him where he's, you know, he'll just tell you that the first couple of weeks he sat there and says, how come nobody ever told me this stuff? Yeah. Um, coming, you know, at, at that at that sort of top of the agency perspective and experience, like experiencing the academic learning of it. And, and at that point, realizing that you're responsible for these overall trends, all these little decisions about when do you leave the street and make the arrest and when is it? When is that advisable compared to leaving a police presence on the street? You know, being at that point, being exposed to the vast wealth of our scientific knowledge, I think it's crucial. But we instead build these kind of we built this pyramid structure where you could never be a chief constable unless you were a patrolman, and to be a patrolman, you didn't need that education. Um, and then yeah, when exactly. it, when is there time? Yeah, yeah. In in your growing career, that when you get promoted to inspector and say, well, now you need to go away for three years or four years and get that undergraduate degree. Mm. I didn't think about um, coming from my undergrad about designing a a degree specifically for police officers yeah. um, and running out of university, uh, but yeah, that's a conversation for another time. Yeah, yeah. Well, Jeff, thank you for your time. Oh, and, um, pleasure. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and in the future, I will have Larry Sherman on here, so we can have a discussion with him of a similar nature. Yes, <laughs> he's he's also vaguely responsible for me uh, for me meeting the woman I was going to marry. Really. <laughs> So he's been in my life way too much. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah. Cool, man. Well, yeah. thank you. Yeah. And thanks for listening, people. Peace out. Come on.